Amen. How does it look to be completely free from jealousy and selfish ambition? And why is it important for us to address the problem of jealousy and selfish ambition as Christians? The reason is because if we don't do that, it leads to ruin. It leads to quenching the work of God in our selfishness. We live in a time and age where popularity and great uh, churches, mega churches, have been led by leaders who have fallen precisely because of their popularity. I don't know if you're familiar, but there has been some uh, cases like this. Uh, for example, Mark Driscoll in, uh, in uh, Washington State or Hillsong, who was in New York State. These mega church pastors who have fallen and they have brought with them great uh, scandal for the cause of God in the church. And there has been various people who have spoken about those things, documentaries and things that are coming out. Not all of that might be biblical. However, what all of those cases seems to have in common is that these individuals had fallen into jealousy and selfish ambition to the point of being placed on a pedestal, being fed with narcissism, Everything was rotating around those individuals and that placed them and their followers in a trap which ultimately led to the destruction of their ministry but also the destruction of many people and so the stumble of the cause of God came. And so that, friends, I believe that jealousy and selfish ambition is kind of the specific issue that our text wants to solve the calamity of the celebrity culture that surrounds us here in North America particularly is solved by the example of John the Baptist in the words of our text John 3 22 to 36 if you remember in past week we continued this journey through John and Jesus had gathered his first followers, the first disciple, last Sunday. For those who were in here, we, we descended from the mountain peak of the new birth. You must be born again. And then led to the Apostle John to make some comments explaining the gospel. We saw the most famous verse in the Bible, John 3, 16. That God loves the world so much that He sent His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Now, if you have been discipled for years by a certain mentor, you feel the need, John the author of the gospel, feels the need to go back to his mentor and the, uh, that was John the Baptist. And so we come in verse 22 now. He goes back to John the Baptist. And what seems to be the issue here is that Jesus is now gathering a certain measure of success which is greater than John the Baptist. At least in the eyes of the disciple on John the Baptist. And that leads John the Baptist to 
have another opportunity to give a further testimony about who Jesus is and why Jesus is superior to himself. He repeats that humble posture and points back again to the Messiah, saying, I am not the Christ. And we are told here only in this gospel that Jesus was actually engaging in a baptismal ministry. The other gospels don't mention this. In other words, there was a season where John the Baptist and Jesus were ministering side by side. And this gave the occasion for the disciples of John to make some comparison. And it brought discomfort. John the Apostle, in fact, is writing his gospel to the believers who are in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. And already, if you go to the Acts of the Apostle, in chapter 18, verse 24, all the way to chapter 19, verse 7, you have people there in Asia Minor who were followers, we could say die-hard followers of John the Baptist, who had not heard of the baptism of Jesus. And to them, the gospel come. The apostle John administered for those, to those people for years. And so, John has to write now, saying to them and to us, it is time to move on from, from John the Baptist, the witness of John the Baptist, to the one witness about, which is Jesus, who is the Christ, the Messiah. So we have a transition here between two forms of baptism. The baptism of John the Baptist and the, the Christian baptism introduced by Jesus. And we're not going to repeat what we saw already. If you were here five Sundays ago, we saw, I encourage you to go and re-listen to the recording of John the Baptist's ultimate testimony. And we looked, if you remember, that the testimony of John the Baptist was what? That he is not the Messiah, but that Jesus is the Messiah. And we could have patch together this verse 22 all the way to the end of verse 36 of chapter 3 together with that message however there's something more in this verse something specific that we must not miss something more than john the baptist wants to tell us especially if we think of the current need of the church in north america the, the need even to avoid jealousy to avoid comparison, which is carnality, to avoid the trap of our culture, which is very much focused upon celebrity and things like that. And what John the Baptist wants you to see that is that Christians are called to joyfully accept the personal oblivion, to be forgotten, to be completely set aside like John the Baptist, as long as the gospel of Christ, as long as the person of Jesus Christ gets exalted more and more. But that can happen, friends, only if we become less as, as Christ becomes greater. So let us make a few, few comments here. I got three comments on our text. And the first comment I want to make is the problem of competition. That... When there is jealousy, like in verse 22 to 26 over Jesus, or we could say, just like it happens today in many churches, that there can be jealousy because 
God's work is increasing through the work of other Christians. And if you think that's a new problem, then read verse 22 to 26. It's already there. In verse 22, we already have a dispute over platform between John the Baptist's disciples and Jesus' disciples. Verse 22 tells us, after these things, we saw that last week, the conversation, the long conversation with Nicodemus about the new birth. Jesus had gathered those this first disciples and he now goes south, back to Judea, to the countryside of the southern tribes of Judah in Israel. It's like coming here in the south and doing some country baptizing in the creek, we could say. And Jesus remains there to baptize. Now, chapter 4, verse 2 tells us that it wasn't Jesus who was baptizing. Chapter 4, verse 2 tells us that he, his disciples were baptizing. However, we learn that this baptist, baptism of, of Jesus was different than the one of John the Baptist. That it was no longer the preparatory baptism that John the Baptist was doing to prepare people to the coming of the Messiah, which was still tied to the Old Covenant. But this was the, the, the real Christian baptism, that it was to identify, identify yourself with being a Christian, a follower of Jesus Christ, which is the baptism that we today practice in obedience to the command of Jesus. And in verse 23, there seems to be a problem that John the Baptist was also baptizing. And so that is a problem because it seems like Jesus and his followers are taking over John the Baptist's original business. Okay? We don't know the location there in Salem. It is true that definitely that John the Baptist is going north. As almost leaving the area around Jerusalem to Jesus and his disciples. And there was much water to actually be able to dunk people in the river. And this happened again before John the Baptist. Our text says, verse 24, before he was thrown into prison. So these are the last months on John the Baptist's ministry before he goes to jail and ultimately is beheaded. And there's a dispute. There's a dispute over influence. Verse 25 and 26. Here there arose a question. A controversy. A debate. A discussion. We could say a theological disputation. Between the disciples of John. And some Jews. Earlier texts speak of one Jewish individual. Which could be like in chapter 1. If you remember. Uh, there was this. Repre representative of the Jewish authorities in Jerusalem who are starting a debate with the disciples of John over purification, over their ceremonial and ritual washing for impurity that the Levitical ceremonial law required through baptism. But all of that was coming under threat by the baptizing of Jesus. Because, you know, like in a baptism debate, if you watch online, it can get pretty heated. We don't know the content of this issue, but it's very likely that there was a comparison either between those two baptisms, 
the baptism of John the Baptist and the baptism of Jesus, or more likely the problem that Jesus was now setting aside the ceremonial aspect of baptism, which John the Baptist was practiced, which many of the Jewish people were doing with the ceremonial washing, in favor of what we saw last week. What, we, what did we see last week? In this very, very same chapter, that the new birth in the person getting baptized is far more important than an outward ceremonial cleansing. That Jesus is coming with a new type of baptism, which is better because it really purifies the soul. It really removes the uncleanness, which then makes all the purification of the Old Testament, the ceremonial law, now obsolete, fulfilled in Christ. Because now the reality of baptism is before our eyes. The heart of people were changed by truly repenting, by truly believing in the one who has been sent by the Father. No more ceremonial cleansing. Jesus Christ cleanses us from all impurity. And so baptism now in Jesus testifies to those truths in the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit. The, the, the emphasis we saw last week of the necessity of the new birth, of you must be born again. Or even weeks ago when we went to the wedding of Canaan, the first miracle of Jesus and those water jars, the stony water jars of the cleansing of the Jews, all of that is now coming to an end. The end of this ceremonial washing and the end of the baptism of John the Baptist, we could say. So this is a different baptism because it's no longer tied to the old covenant like in the case of John the Baptist. And so the, the Jewish people from probably Jerusalem are coming and debating with John the Baptist's disciple. And look, he's setting all these things aside and they're wondering what baptism is better. And the religious leaders are taking issue with the baptism of Jesus because it's no longer following the ceremonial law. And even the disciples of John gets into the controversy. Because here in our text, in verse 26, they come to John the Baptist and says, Rabbi, the one who was with you is baptizing and everyone is going to him. See that element of jealousy and competition, comparison. The disciples of John rightly say, the, the one who was with you, whom, whom you have testified. You remember five weeks ago, five Sundays ago, we saw John the Baptist says twice, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And that testimony of John the Baptist should have been enough for the disciples to realize that this was not something to protest, not something to be mad about. But here is Jesus who is baptizing. So whose baptism is best? John's or Jesus? This is a challenge to the disciples of John the Baptist because he says, all are coming to him, which is obviously an exaggeration. Not every single person is coming, but it seems that the fact that Jesus is raising in popularity raised some eyebrow to the disciples of John the Baptist. This is not good for us. 
This is not good for our beloved leader, John the Baptist. Everyone is going there instead of us to, to get the same service that we provide. We're losing number, John. If we don't do something, we'll run out of followers. And later on, John the Apostle makes the same mistake in Luke 9.49. It says, Master, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he is not one of us. He is uh, not part of the Reform Club, not part of our tribe. And that caused some issue, you see. You see, when Christ advances His cause of His kingdom through means other than ourself, we should not do like the disciples of John. We should not be envious about it. We should not be jealous about it. We should rejoice. That's why Jerry Bridges once says, The cure of the sin of envy and jealousy is to find your contentment in God. Not by comparing with other people. See, ambition is not necessarily wrong. Many servants of God throughout the ages had done great things for God. However, even in the way that you use that word ambition, that today is it's actually a good word in the American dream, back then was a bad word. That ambition, when it leads to competition, to jealousy, rivalry, division, church splits. And protecting your image at all costs, like in those examples that I mentioned in the beginning to today, these are all symptoms that there is a deeper problem of idolatry. That's why when Moses comes down of the mountain and finds Aaron and all Israel going and worshiping a golden calf, he says to him, Aaron, what did these people do to you that you have brought such great sin upon them? That celebrity, that idolatry, that cult of personality of anything other than Christ creeping into the church. And this is not just a problem of the big famous pastor, but even church members. We are responsible, like Israel at the golden calf of what happens in the church. And this doesn't happen just in religious Pharisees in Jerusalem. Even in our story, we see that good followers of John the Baptist are concerned by the growing popularity of Jesus. Therefore, it's not just you know, those mega church pastors that can fall into this trap. Even in smaller and more faithful environments like ours, it can be the same thing. It can have the same problem. The issues... You know, I know in, your, in the history of this church, there, there has been some people who wanted a, the primacy in leadership, and that's wrong. We must remain content to play the specific role that God has established for us. To not go above, not beyond. And I am encouraged of cases where we are on guard against exalting ourselves. You know, I was told by Tommy several times, worry about the depth of your ministry, let God take care of the breadth of it. And that, I feel, is a wise counsel. That our goal as a church should not necessarily just be to get more and more views on our website or have a bigger building or fill with people and be a popular church. While those things are not necessarily wrong, our goal should be faithful steward of what the Lord has for us. And to be satisfied in His plan. The quality and not the quantity. 
And this goes beyond, as I said, leaders. We can get jealous of one another. If somebody is a brother in the church or sister in the church gets ahead of us. Or if you risk of doing things out of selfish ambition or you want to be seen by others. In our family, we must not tolerate any form of idolatry, any form of, of covetousness. Because friends, that leads to compromises. That leads to lies, double lives. And even in our work, in the way you do your business, you want to be found faithful more than you know, the, the, the breadth of your business, the, the, the money that you can make. See, that's why 1 Timothy 6 verse 9 to 10 warns us about covetousness and the idol of making money which leads to destruction. Here's what 1 Timothy 6 verse 9 says. Those who want to get rich fall into a snare. And many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sort of evil. And some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith. And pierced themselves with many grief. May it never be us. That the temptation of getting more. The temptation of ambition able to corrupt even the best of men. Sweeps us away. We live in a day and age when everyone craves to be the center. The boss, the famous, the successful. The temptation is to always want the spotlight. Always want the best seat and the first row of anything that happened. And to do the things that are more visible. Even in the church you want to get popular. I want you to know this, this is not how you glorify God. It's by doing the humble thing. By not exalting yourself. By creating a church where we are in this together, we are not exalting ourselves over one another. And none of these things, friends, as I said, ambition is not necessarily wrong, but if we are, we're not content to do also the most humble things and unnoticed things, to be the servant of all, that's the one who is greater before God. And if that's not the case, that's a problem. I mean, that was the problem of these leaders of Hillsong or Mega Church or Mark Driscoll, that... It's all about the leader. It's all about loyalty to them as loyalty to God. Control becomes the key. The person and not the doctrine becomes the focus. Even others are just there to protect the person at all costs. And that's dangerous. When it conquers churches and it leads to, to destruction. Instead we say, I'm just an unprofitable serve, servant before you. Just like John the Baptist says, we will see. Because, you know... That is, not, that is not showing the gospel of grace. You see? That is, that is actually saying, because of the gospel, I am, it's not because of my self-righteousness, not because of my performance, that the Bible is not about me, it's about what Christ has done in me. It is only by grace. It is the work and obedience of another. I am just a sinner, a wretched sinner saved by grace. And so the work is finished by Him. And it is finished through the instrument of the cross. That the triumph of Christ comes through what outwardly appears like failure and mortification and denial of self and everything that goes against our culture. But that's what we're called to, to, to follow. To identify with the cross. And to die to self and let Christ reign.
and to be free then from the bondage of jealousy and comparison. And you know, since we're talking on the topic of baptism here, you see how the inward actual repentance and the new birth that we saw last week, it was more important than the external, than the ceremonial law. Because friends, action speaks louder than words. What, what, what is more important is not the outward elements of religion, whether you get baptized, but whether you are truly born again. So how do we deal with pride and loftiness? 1 Corinthians 1, 31 says, Let no wise man boast in his wisdom. Let him boast in that he knows me. When you pursue ambition selfishly, you only bring division. And that is particularly true in, in this day and age with internet. We got social media and Christians are getting, you know, in controversy all over the world. All the time. And it creates that party spirit that 1 Corinthians addresses. In 1 Corinthians 3 verse 4 it says, I am with Paul. I am with Apollos. I am with preacher so and co so. I am with MacArthur. I am with Paul Washer. I am with, with this, John Piper, blah, 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 blah. But Paul is telling you that that is actually a sign of carnality, of immaturity. That it's not about who is better. That these are mere men. Sinful, made of dust as best. And what they have, they receive from God. And we praise and boast on the Lord and not on them. Oh, now, don't get me wrong. There are times that we have to pick sides and realize that, you know, if the truth is at stake, we have to act. But if you make your side, your party, your stream of Christianity, your identity, instead of Christ. That your identity should be in Jesus. And that all of these things are just serving Jesus. It becomes a problem. And remember what Corinthians says. That in Christ all things are yours. All things are yours. That is the beauty that we must realize. That you know John the Baptist is mine in Christ. They don't own you. You don't own allegiance to a preacher no matter what. Even if they compromise and... And then disaster comes like it come with those cases we saw. You don't ask who is the coolest preacher, the bigger building, the newer worship team, the more efficient structure, which then leads you to be dissatisfied and coveting someone else's thing. And that, friends, is not just in the church. At work is the same thing. In your career, in your house, in your family, in your marriage, anything else in life, jealousy, idolatry must be removed. But the answers of Jesus is not when, when John, John the Apostle tells him, hey, there's somebody else who is casting out demons, but not with us. And it's like, let him continue. Because he was not against me, is for me. That's why, as we come to our second point of John the Baptist, he says, let him take it. Even at the price of the end of my ministry, let Christ be magnified. Therefore, let's go to our second point. In verse 27 to 30, we, we must make a comment on humility. And the humility of John the Baptist here, which shines wonderfully. When John the Baptist says, he, Jesus must increase and I must decrease. It's because John the Baptist is aware that Jesus alone is the legitimate Christ, the legitimate Messiah. He should have the spotlight, not me. Verse 27 says, Can anyone receive anything unless it is given to him from heaven? 
Because it is from heaven that comes the appointment for each man's work. The place that we, each one of us have in this life and in the church. So we must be content with that. And in verse 28, John the Baptist reminds them of what he said. You yourself bore me witness that I said, weeks ago we saw this, I am not the Christ. I was just sent before him to prepare the way. And so if the disciple would have given credit to that testimony, there would have been no jealousy, no controversy. And we saw how the apostle John was willing to live, you remember, weeks ago, John the Baptist, to follow Jesus. Why? Do you remember that? Because he valued the truth that John the Baptist preached over the person. Because if you don't do that and you make an idol out of everything, even good things, even a good godly man or whatever, and it hinders Christ from ruling over the church, ruling over your heart as the only one that has the primacy. Jesus alone is the head, as to verse 29 now, to make the point clear, John the Baptist uses a metaphor, and he speaks of a bridegroom. We could say that Jesus is the life and soul and head of the party. That we believers, and particularly John the Baptist, is just a friend of the bridegroom. Later, Jesus will continue this image of a wedding. Just like the best man in a wedding, John the Baptist... His role is just to attend the bridegroom, maybe give a speech to congratulate the couple, support the groom in various ways during the ceremony, and to do what? Verse 29, to rejoice greatly, with great joy. And what is the reason of this joy? He hears the bridegroom's voice. And that, in Jewish weddings, you had a friend of the groom who had uh, guard the bride's house and he was waiting until the once the, 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 the groom will come and when he heard his voice then there was a triumphal shout because the bridegroom has come and, and the marriage is now started and John the Baptist is content to fulfill that modest role to see the church and Christ comes together as Christ comes and, and gathers his bride, the church, he is happy that finally they meet as Jesus walked this earth and he died for his church on the cross. So he hears that the Messiah is be beginning to preach and he is beginning to gather crowds, but he's not jealous. He's glad. In fact, he says, his joy is fulfilled, it's complete. Because I have done what I was sent to do. To just to prepare the way for Jesus. That, that was all that I was sent for. And the key is there in verse 30. Again. He must increase. But I must decrease. Jesus from this time forward will increase in fame, popularity and in ministry. And conversely, in direct opposite... John the Baptist will go to jail and ultimately be beheaded and forgotten. And it seems like in these words, John the Baptist has a special interest to actually surrender to this reality. Not fight it. To become less important, inferior. To be made lower. Why not even forgotten? That is the perfect picture of humility. I love the words of Nicholas Zinzerdorf. 
who started the Moravian Brethren, if you're familiar with, he said this, preach the gospel, die and be forgotten. That's all that there is to it. John the Baptist understand that when Christ advances cause, even at the price of his downgrade, he still rejoices. He still rejoices that Christ rightly owns the spotlight. And we don't. If you, like John the Baptist, remember who Jesus is, you remember that he's so high lifted up. He has come from God and he is God in the flesh. Who are we? And what are our pettiness of our shift of popularity? All of that will vanish. And you embrace your an an anonymity because Jesus alone is to be glorified. Now, friends, I know that in our camps, we love to say, you know, to God be the glory. Only God be the glory. That's this, this is a lofty word. We like to use this word a lot, but I, I, I'm afraid that actually sometimes we're most tempted than others to self-glory. And to a man-centered traditionalism, that is a problem. That is a problem. That Jesus is far above the ordinary rank of man. He exists from eternity to eternity. And in fact, right now, He sits enthroned at the right hand of the Father. Who are you in comparison to this Jesus? Who am I? All we are called to do is to bow down and worship him that he is the head of the church the bridegroom and we are just a bride we are adopted to this family and what will we do as the bride we just submit we follow we point people to the head jesus christ we are just a body we do what the head commands we belong to him he does not belong to us so that we can use him as we please that's why people, when either in the church or in family or work, manipulate your Christian claim for a selfish goal, don't realize that that is a dangerous part to be in. Imagine, again, the metaphor of the bridegroom. You can accompany the groom like a friend of the groom. You celebrate the marriage, but ultimately, he provided everything for us. We didn't do anything. He provided his sacrifice for us. He died for his bride on the cross. And so we must re remain content to submit, to exalt him. And we don't appropriate for ourselves what exclusively belongs to the bridegroom. I was warned by one of my mentors before coming here in, in our previous church. Uh, Garrett is his name. Garrett Kale, he, he, he started the pastoral internship, sitting all of the interns together. And he says, friends, the church is his bride. So don't use his bride to advance your selfish goals. Because he is jealous over his bride. And that, that stick with me. That just like the best man at the wedding gets his honor by honoring the groom. Imagine how shameful it would be and awkward for anyone to actually seek his own honor before all the guests in a situation like that. Like, you're not the point. You begin talking about yourself. You promote your image. Isn't that how sadly how many Christians are where do and go around this? And pastors, mega church pastors, over and above Jesus. We should find our delight in Christ being magnified even at the price of our personal loss. Whether it's a loss of popularity, whether it's a loss of money, because I want to be faithful to Jesus in everything in my life. 
Even if for a loss of reputation, when we obey the word of God and the world around you mock you and says, you are, what are you doing? You say, no, I want to obey God. That is the contentment that comes from finding satisfaction in God. That's what Paul does in Philippians chapter 1 verses 18 to 20. There were people who were preaching Christ from envy and strife. And here you have Paul in jail. And what does he do? He says, knowing this envy and strife of people that are preaching for self-image ambition, he says, what does it matter? So long as in every way, whether for self-promotion or in all honesty, Christ is being preached. And in this, I rejoice. In this, I find my delight. Friend, your greatest joy, your greatest satisfaction is to see Christ honored. That's all that matters. Not that you get honored, not that you get, you know, advanced or successfully in this life, but that Jesus reigns in the church and not you, not your program, not your ideas. Someone was reminding me of this quote. I don't remember who actually wrote it, but a man cannot make himself great and make Christ great at the same time. Just like he must increase, you must decrease. The two go together. It's impossible. You, he must become greater. That means you and I must become less. That means that the, 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 the true remarkable humility of John the Baptist, of a true servant of God, must be found in me and you. That we follow this example away from this Hollywood culture that surrounds us, and, and we realize that in actual humility, we find our happiness. That the impact will be dramatic. Because I'm sure, I'm sure that no church or leader or Christian makes his personal calling to become less famous, less successful, to have less convert. And yet, friends, this is precisely the attitude of John the Baptist, a preacher in the desert, despised and persecuted, by the rulers of this world, even by his own fellow Jewish religious leaders, and apparently is the greatest in the sight of God. Just like the sun rises and scatters the night, or just like trees can grow and take over deserts, so Christ needs to take over our church, all of our ideas, all of our projects, all of our motions to vote, we, we must move out of the way. We must say, Lord, have your way. You increase and we decrease. We necessarily have to decrease. Because it would be absurd to keep John the Baptist greater than Jesus. It would be actually pure rebellion to the fact that he is God. To the fact that he must be exalted. And that, to the fact that everyone who exalts himself shall be brought low. In fact, Satan and our first sin in Adam and Eve was exactly that. To be like God. To promise and follow that lie. To actually go above what God has given. And it brought ruin. It brought ruin everything. So that every sin, ultimately, is that defiance of wanting to take the honor that rightly belongs only to God, to yourself. And if, if, if even Jesus, who rightly owns that honor, did not take it for himself. When people wanted to make him a king, he goes into the wilderness. And escapes in solitude. How much me and you who are so easily entangled by jealousy, ambition, and all sorts of things. Let us conclude with a comment on true greatness. 
at the end of our text, verse 31 to 36, I'll go quick here. The, the, the idea is that Jesus' testimony is superior to anyone else. That the reason why he must increase is that he is from above. He has a higher status because of his being God in the flesh. And so he's above everything. He's superior to anything that is earthly. And there, John the Baptist in verse 21 speaks of two different languages. An heavenly language and an earthly language. Which we cannot decode. John the Baptist with all of his ministry was so far be beyond what Jesus can tell us about the Lord. It's like the Tower of Babel. We speak a foreign language and we need God to come down through Jesus Christ to reveal to us things that are a mystery for us. And therefore, Jesus' testimony is far greater. Remember, this ultimate testimony of John the Baptist continues here. That everyone should receive it. However, sadly, verse 34 and 33, that this testimony is not received. That many are rejecting Jesus Christ, sadly. We saw that it was the sad part of last week, that because of their deeds are evil, they don't want to come to the light. And so they reject this testimony of Christ. However, the promise that He gives you the Holy Spirit unmeasurably you remember the miracle of the wedding of Canaan that this wine was 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 overflown in the same way here the Holy Spirit rests in Jesus Christ at his baptism through that symbol of the dove and he is able to give it to you if however verse 35 to 36 you respond in faith the father loves the son we saw that bond of love that he sent his son for us the unique son the special son and he has given all things into his hand which means he has authority over all things Ephesians 1 22 says all things he has placed under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church and just like John told us in the beginning of chapter 3 he who believes in the son has everlasting life that now what you need to do is to respond to the testimony of God superior to all things by humbling yourself, yes. But the first humbling happens here by true faith. By truly bowing down to Him. Setting aside your self-righteousness. Setting aside your works. And by faith receiving eternal life. Faith in what we saw last week. The serpent lifted up. The, the, the beautiful sacrifice. Otherwise, that is the final threat of our text. Verse 36. If, if you don't do that, the wrath of God abides in you. And that wrath of God, friends, is the displeasure and indignation of God against sin. All sort of to sin. The same wrath that Romans 1 tells us is revealed from heaven against ungodliness and unrighteousness of man. What is their unrighteousness? By their unrighteousness, they suppress the truth. They don't obey the truth. Even if you know, you claim to know God, but you suppress the truth, that leads to the wrath of God abiding continually, almost as burning coals upon your head, until finally you die, and then you go to hell, and that will be multiplied forever, an eternity of separation from God. 
And that wrath of God, friends, uh, hangs over the head of everyone who has not believed, truly submitted to this gospel. That's why Thomas Watson appeared and once says, Hell is an abiding place, but it's no resting place. And so, friend, when Christ is exalted above all things, all you have to do to be avoid the destruction because of your sin and rebellion is to bow down, to submit and believe in Him and ultimately what He has done for you at the cross. Christ is superior in three things. In His glory, in His authority, and in the fact that He is God. Christ must have the preeminence in the churches we saw today. So if you defend and promote the name of Christ and the reputation of Christ, don't steal what rightly belongs to Him and Him alone. Christ is also superior because of his, the fact that He is God. That He has direct access to the Father. That He gives you the Holy Spirit. He reveals the will of the Father through the Word of God, the Bible. And He sends the Holy Spirit abundantly. And so any human teacher cannot compare to Christ. Should not dare to take any glory to himself. And this gospel, friends, is the stamp of approval from God. That indeed, it is not by your merit. It is not by your works. It is through faith in Christ. And there you receive eternal life. However, just like the ending of verse 36, the sad fact that is that most people don't want to submit to this Jesus. Despite the fact that Jesus has all authority, that you have to give to Him an account on that last day. On this faith verges your eternal destiny, friend. The Bible says that God is angry with the wicked every day. And when, when the word wicked is used there, the wicked is not just the drug addict out there who is neighbors to us. It's not just the homosexual out there. But even if you claim to go to church and believe in God, but you lie, you cover, you compromise, you mention the name of God, you claim that near to Him, but you have not truly repented of your sin and trusted wholly in the righteousness of Christ for your salvation, that ultimately leads you like everyone else who has born of the womb, who by nature is a child of wrath, whose wrath, the wrath of God hangs over their head. And there's no hope for you unless you are delivered from this right condemnation. Because you have sinned against the holy God. I was reading this morning about the, the, that, the man who, Uzzah, who comes from in front of the ark and, and he gets slain. This is a holy God, friends. You want to face in on that day without Jesus Christ? The fact that you know all of this and you still rebel, it's a double guilt. Friends, we are all appointed to die. That eternal death awaits everyone in hell unless a solution is found. That we are all wanted, wanted for criminals. There's a price on our head and a death penalty because the soul that sin must die, says the scripture. And I know that your conscience testify of this oppressing, of overwhelming guilt to the point that some of us cannot even sleep at night. That God has to awaken us to ourselves, to our unbelief that drags us down even to greater chains, greater sins, greater compromise, until finally you realize 
The wrath of God is ending over my head. I got burning coals over my head and follow me wherever I go. In the morning, in the afternoon. Don't you want to be delivered from that? That condemnation that doesn't leave us until Christ allures us to final surrender to the realization that I need to embrace the cross. I need to realize that yes, unless this wrath of God is dealt with, I am undone. And that by God's grace at the cross, Jesus Christ indeed wore the crown of thorns. The wrath of God was poured out on him. That when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was experiencing that condemnation that you and I should have experienced. He drank the cup. Your sins. The bridegroom who dies for the bride. And remember... This then leads you to trust in Him, in His righteousness, relying on Him. Not because of your works like the good thief, but also He leads you to be changed, to be complete, to have a new resolution in your life, which is often overlooked sadly. But it is part of this repentance and faith. How sad therefore, and I conclude here, when we compete with Christians in this world, like the downfall of the Hillsong pastor who was a celebrity, or Mark Driscoll, and what account they must give to the Lord on that day. When you make Christ into an institution, you focus on your charisma, personality, and uh, you make the church an enterprise for your agenda. When we are supposed to represent Christ on this earth, if we become an hindrance to actually the advancement of Christ's kingdom by our failure to address the sin of our conscience John the Baptist instead friends don't miss his witness for us today he bears in mind who Jesus is that he is he is the Lord of glory he's so high and exalted infinitely superior to me and you who are just broken vessels and therefore he has he's able to have that humble perspective on himself and everything becomes secondary to Christ. Even good, gifted preachers are not the center. That the greatest among us in this church will be the servant of all. Who does things unnoticed and bring the eyes of God. That's what God values the most. Christ alone is preeminent. It's the song that you might know. It says, He's above all powers, above all kings, above all earth created things above all wisdom and all the ways of man friend if this is true then we got some problem in the church in north america we have gone through the century so far away from this ideal of john the baptist he must increase i must decrease and so let this theme resonate not to us not to us be the glory but to you alone, O oh God. You, through Christ, who have come from above, you have revealed to us the heart of the Father, and you have given your life for us and our salvation, and we find our joy in you being exalted, whether there is success or failure, whether I am I'm rich or poor, that I have, I have salvation. And that Christ's kingdom is expanding over the earth. That should give us so much joy. Glittering joy. So that we are, are willing to say with Paul. 
whether I live or die, may Christ be magnified. Let us pray.